0: Hello and welcome to Connecting the Pieces, an Eastern Sector Development Team podcast focused on connecting, supporting and promoting good diversity, wellness and reablement approaches. We'd like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri people as the traditional owners of the land where this podcast is recorded and to pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging and any Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people who may be listening today. So Dale, in our last episode, we talked about some of the misconceptions around diversity, including what it is and why it's important. And in our discussions, you recommended that one of the key strategies that providers can be doing to ensure that their service model incorporates good diversity practice is to know their community. So I'd like to explore this idea a little bit more today. So can you elaborate on what you mean by
1: this? Sure, no problems, Lisa. There's a few components to knowing your community. Firstly, you need to identify the diversity of the people that live in your local area and compare that diversity with the people who use your services, are employed and volunteer for your organisation.
0: Okay, so much like other planning processes, incorporating good diversity practice is firstly about doing your homework, so research and collecting data.
1: Yeah, that's right. And importantly, collecting this information will help you to understand where community groups and where diversity groups aren't represented and whether that exists in your clients, your employees or your volunteers. This demographic profile is really only the start and it can only tell you so much. The other important aspects of knowing your community is obviously engaging with them and finding out their needs, interests and aspirations.
0: Okay, so that's interesting. So when you talk about community, you're actually referring to those who live in the local area and don't access services as well as those that do. So why is this so important?
1: Well, when we think about it, all services, regardless of whether they're aged care, health services, disability, youth, drug and alcohol, they're all located and they operate within a community. This could be a local government area or a region. And people live, work and play in these communities and their experiences need to be understood by the services that are trying to support them. So I really think it should be the goal of every service or every organisation to connect to their community and part of that is having clients, staff and volunteers that represent that community.
0: I think this link is so important because it sets the context. Good diversity practice doesn't just happen so we can't expect to incorporate good diversity practice if we don't plan for it.
1: You're 100% correct that good diversity practice doesn't just happen because we're nice people or we have good values. Like anything, we need to plan for it. Knowing our community supports good diversity practice because local knowledge and experiences are being gathered. From doing this, we should then be in a better position to develop the right services that respond to real needs which should also contribute to a sense of community, safety and cohesion between clients and the service. As I said, the demographic data alone won't allow you to create this. It's just the starting point. It's then vital that once the service knows the diversity of their community and which groups are underrepresented, that they develop ways to connect with local people and learn about what's important to them. The barriers that are preventing them from accessing the service and put plans in place to remove those barriers and address underrepresentation.
0: Thanks, Dale. So that's why we collect information about our communities. But what type of information or data would you suggest that providers look for to give them a good understanding of their communities?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. I guess I would advocate for services to get hold of any data. They can that will tell them about the diversity, inequality or outcomes for people or groups within their community. The characteristics listed in our diversity jigsaw are actually a really good starting point for this, which would mean that we were looking at things like gender, country of birth, language spoken, aboriginality, English proficiency, type of housing or dwelling that people live in, homelessness data, education attainment, and the need for support for daily living, just to name a few.
0: That's a great tip for our listeners, Dale. And I think taking this approach will really ensure that providers are not just focusing their efforts around one or two characteristics of their community.
1: That's right. And it's a really important point because sometimes we can focus on dominant groups or community populations that have a relatively high number in our community, and therefore that makes them stand out. But from looking at the data, we may also see a small but growing community that we haven't connected with. It's also unfortunate but true that there isn't the same reliable data for all diversity or community groups. But it doesn't mean that we just forget about those groups where there is limited data usually indicates groups with some of the highest level of unmet needs.
0: That's a really interesting point, and I think it's worth exploring a little bit more. So where there is no or perhaps limited data available to inform our understanding about different cohorts in a community, what can providers be doing to connect with those particular groups? You know, What type of information should they be seeking?
1: So before I go into that, I think just taking one step back and saying that those diversity categories that I mentioned earlier, country of birth, language spoken, need for support for daily living, these can all be found in census data and census information. And it's unfortunate that a number of diversity categories and life experiences aren't captured, which is a real shame because The census is used to distribute funds based on needs, health outcomes and experiences. And certain populations who have poorer health outcomes or have experienced discrimination aren't being counted.
0: So can you give me some examples of those populations that might not be counted?
1: Questions either aren't being asked or aren't appropriately framed for sexual orientation or gender identity, for people who have lived in institutional care as children, or people with intersex characteristics. So these are some of the areas where there isn't official census data. But at the same time, the Department of Health and the Aged Care Act has acknowledged that these groups are priority communities because of the previous inequality, harm, and discrimination they've experienced. So aged care providers can't just say, oh, well, there's no official data and leave it at that.
0: Okay. so what can we actually be doing in the absence of that data, perhaps at a local level?
1: In the absence of this data, what I would suggest is that you turn to the peak bodies representing these communities. They will have data that operates often at a national level, based on other types of surveys and engagements with the community. But also connect with local groups who represent the interests and needs of diversity groups that you don't have data on. Listen to personal feedback and experiences from staff, volunteers and your community. At an organisational level, start asking questions about what type of diversity data are you recording and see where the gaps are. Think about the inequality that you could be embedding by not having an accurate understanding of who is in your service, what their interests, needs and aspirations are.
0: You rightly pointed out that knowing your community is not just an exercise in data and information collection. So obviously we need to use the information that we collect in a way that's going to enable equitable access. So what is the next step?
1: Once we have our community profile, as I said, we then need to compare it with data we have on our clients, staff and volunteers. This will tell us where there are gaps in representation and help us prioritise need and what actions need to be taken.
0: Okay, so can you give us an example of what this might actually look like?
1: Sure, so if we think about our community profile, If it was telling us that 6% of people over the age of 65 were born in China, but only 1% of our clients over the age of 65 were born in China, then this indicates that people born in China over the age of 65 are underrepresented in our service. We would then need to understand why this was, look at how to bring people into the service, and think about how the service might not currently meet their requirements. What's needed are actions that will address the underrepresentation and remove the barrier potentially that's stopping them from entering the service. But we also need to think about the service delivery requirements of the group or the community that we're trying to improve representation for
0: that's a really great example dale so understanding where the gaps are will help us to prioritize the actions taken to address underrepresentation but if actions are put in place and people are still not accessing or using our services what does this actually tell us
1: I think that's a really important question and something that service providers often find themselves reflecting on because they may think that they've done everything they can, but it hasn't actually changed and made a difference. So I would say that we need to investigate what's causing the underrepresentation or what the barriers are that are still preventing people from accessing the service or being employed. Are they systemic or is it something that the service itself has created. Regardless of whether it's systemic or created by the service, it's still a barrier. It's preventing that person or community from being part of the service. But it's important to know if the barrier is caused by systemic issues or if it's something the service has created, as this will determine how you go about removing the barrier.
0: So this sounds interesting, Dale, and it would be great if you could elaborate a little bit more on this, perhaps share a couple of examples of where barriers may exist.
1: Sure. I think it's probably important first to say that systemic barriers are things like policies, practices or procedures that result in people or communities receiving unequal access or being excluded. This can operate at a societal level or at an organisational level. If we take a look at it from a societal level, one example could be that a community has a lived experience where they were mistreated maybe by health, government or aged care professionals. That lived experience is real and it has a very significant impact on them. Therefore, and I would say quite understandably, they may perceive that if they were to go into a similar setting the same outcome would occur. So they don't access the local health, aged care or community service because their lived experience tells them it's not safe to do so. Now, the service may actually be genuinely welcoming, have well-trained and engaged staff that take a person-centered approach and are committed to supporting people's diversity. But the systemic societal barrier Is significant. Therefore, the priority for the service would be to build rapport, show that the service and staff understand the previous mistreatment and demonstrate how their service is different, how it's responsive, but most importantly, how it's culturally safe for individuals and communities.
0: Thanks, Dale. I think history and certainly evidence demonstrates that there has been Discrimination and mistreatment within different communities throughout time. We only need to consider the experiences of the stolen generation or the LGBTI communities, for example. And I think it's so important that we seek to understand and address the barriers that prevent these communities from accessing services. So, if this is an example of a systemic barrier and how services would look to remove those types of barriers, How does this differ from a barrier that might be created by a service?
1: I guess in contrast to our previous example, the barrier could be that the service actually isn't safe, welcoming and inclusive. It could be a fact that has been experienced by clients and then shared with the community. In this instance, removing the barriers requires a very different approach. There would be a lot more work to do around staff development and training. There'd need to be supervision of staff, looking at the service design approaches and the culture of the organization. In this instance, the organization would then have a lot of relationship building and repairing to do. I think it's important to say that incidents not addressed by an organization can easily turn into a systemic barrier. And we need to remind ourselves and our colleagues that barriers are not the fault of the community or the diversity group. It's not caused by them, and it's not their responsibility to fix it.
0: I think that's a really good point, Dale. But what would your response be to someone who says, you know, I'm inclusive, our service is inclusive, we welcome everybody. People shouldn't prejudge us because they've had a prior bad experience. You know, there's no reason for us to do anything differently.
1: A few things to this. First, I think it's our role as service providers and workers to see things from the client's perspective. Second, it's not for us to tell people we're inclusive. Our clients will make that judgment if we're inclusive. Obviously, it's something that we want to promote that we are inclusive as a value and as a goal. But ultimately, the clients will make that final judgment And thirdly, if we're not prepared to understand someone's lived experience and take that into account, then we absolutely will not be creating a safe, welcoming and inclusive environment. We'll actually be reinforcing inequality, making it more difficult for people to access services and in turn contributing to a worse outcome for people who have already experienced marginalisation.
0: I think that's the right approach, you know, to consider the client's perspective. And it certainly fits within the intent of good person-centred practice and our aged care quality standards. But there may be some people who find this way of thinking quite challenging.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if we're serious and committed to our diversity and inclusion work, we have to adopt this type of approach, I think. It allows the community to be seen and heard. I think you're right when you said it may be challenging and that is very true. Overcoming barriers isn't easy and we may feel personally challenged by some of the feedback that we get. But we do have to go into this work with an open mind and be okay with feeling uncomfortable about some of the things that we're going to hear and reflect on what that means for us and the organisation not shy away from what's being shared. It can be hard, but if we're defensive about how people feel, the experiences they've had, then we won't get anywhere. I think we need to remember that there is quite a significant power imbalance between us as a service provider or a professional and someone seeking support. So we need to be aware of that imbalance and make sure we address it. It's absolutely vital that we go back to the principles of good inclusive person-centred practice. Put the person at the centre of their care, remove the barriers by listening and acting on what they tell you, give them autonomy, choice and control.
0: Dale, we've spoken a lot today about the importance of knowing your community and the impact that this can have, not only for ensuring equitable access, but also for service design. And your reference to good inclusive person-centred practice is a great lead-in to our next podcast, where we'll be discussing how to create inclusive service delivery environments that celebrate each person's diversity through a wellness or person-centred approach. If our listeners today are interested, you can access our diversity and wellness resources at the eastern sector development team website at www.esdt.com.au and we'd love to hear your ideas about future topics for our podcast if there's an area that you would like to discuss or to hear about please feel free to email the eastern sector development team at esdt at each
1: com.au.
0: So thanks again for sharing your wisdom today and I look forward to chatting with you
1: soon. Thanks a lot, Lisa.
0: The Eastern Sector Development Team is supported by the Australian Government, Department of Health, and although funding has been provided by the Australian Government, the materials and comments made does not necessarily represent the views or the policies of the Australian Government.